Welcome in to this edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks from Gainesville, Florida. And in the center of the screen coming to us from Atlanta, Georgia, we've got Ben Ingram, one of the radio broadcasters for the Atlanta Braves, who just had a great run in the playoffs. And Ben, how's everything going for you? It's going well, man. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, good to catch up with you guys. It's been a minute. Yeah, and Ben, what's what was this past season like? You know, calling baseball in a, in a pandemic and uh, having to do it remotely—it's it's certainly unlike anything we've ever seen before as broadcasters. So, how did it treat you? I'd like to say it's something we'll never see again. Yeah. <laughs> well, but uh, it—you know—the the best thing about it was we had a season. There, there was a, a big chunk of the summer where I wasn't sure that was going to happen or not, and we're going through. April, May, June, and, and really up in the air as to what we might do for the season. There are a lot of people in our industry who weren't sure we'd even play, and that was going to be really disappointing. So to, to have any kind of a season, just any kind of semblance of a season at all was big, and to finish it I think was really big because once they laid this thing out, we're going to play 60 games, and you're just going to play within your division and uh, cross-league within the, the other division uh, interleague-wise. That was a great plan, but finishing the thing off, I think, was a, a big mystery, whether or not we'd be able to get there. So uh, coming up with a plan, um, seeing the season through, crowning a champion, I think that was very, very big. And and for us as broadcasters, it was just hold on tight and, and do what you can because when the team was in town, everything was normal with the exception of fans in the stands. We were in our normal booth. We were calling the game on the field. I, I thought that the piped-in crowd noise helped a lot. Um, I, I thought that made it, at least for our listeners on the air, on, on the radio, it sounded somewhat normal. Uh, but when the team was gone, I think that's when the challenges would come because that's when we were still in our booth there in Atlanta and watching off TV monitors, and we had multiple monitors in our booth. And it took multiple games, I feel, maybe a two to three games before your eyes are really cha- uh, trained as to where to look. Uh, for whatever was taking place in the game. That was a pretty big challenge. Uh, But all in all, it was a fun run for this team, and they had a really good year. And by the time we got to the postseason, I think we'd done the best we could to, quote-unquote, master calling a game without you being there and and knowing which monitor to look at for whatever play. So uh, a lot of challenges along the way, but it was a fun run. And and you talk about trying to master the art of of calling a game off of multiple TVs. What was the hardest part about it? it, We asked uh, John Shambi this last week, and and he had mentioned, you know, judging fly balls and knowing if if it's going to leave the ballpark off the bat. Those are things that you can see in the ballpark. So making that adjustment to a remote studio from a play-by-play technical aspect, what were some of the hardest parts? That was definitely one of them. The toughest part to me was is anytime there was a base hit to a gap or down the line and there were guys on base. Because when you're there in person, you're seeing it all in front of you. I can see runners at first and second, who's going where, who's advancing where, uh, if a guy's going to score, if a guy's being sent home. I didn't know what was going on anytime there was a gapper because you're watching the monitor and you see the center fielder, right fielder, left fielder go into the gap. I don't know where the runners are. I don't know who's stopping up. I don't know if a guy fell down in between second and third. I don't know if the third base coach is waving him home. I don't know if he scored easily. And it was it was such a uh, a, a challenge I feel to wait a beat and, and just let it you know make sure you knew exactly where everything was because you're so used to calling what you see. Well, in this set of circumstances, everything that you're used to seeing wasn't there for you. You're blind to a lot of what was taking place, and and that's what why I mentioned. 
uh, training your eyes to know which monitor to look at was, was really important because I had a monitor in front of me that was exactly what people would see if they're watching on TV. I had a monitor right up here that was an overhead all nine view is what we called it. Uh, so you could see, I'd look up there for defensive shifts uh, because if you're just watching the, the game at home, you're just seeing the, the camera from center field. You don't know where the defenders are positioning themselves. Uh, you'd look up there to see if a runner's got a big lead, if a runner's stealing. And those are things that you'd have to anticipate. If I got a catcher at first base and two outs in the inning, well, I probably don't have to look up there to see what his lead is. But if, if, if I got the leadoff man on base and it's a favorable count, I think he might run. I'm watching my screen in front of me to see what's actually taking place with a pitcher, batter, and catcher, but also cheating up here to see what that guy is, what the lead looks like, and if he goes. And almost to the point where you started to use your peripheral vision to kind of look in between the two to kind of see exactly what it looked like. Because if he moved, you knew you had to say, well, he's runners on the move. Uh, those are challenges that came along the way. Uh, but I think the biggest thing was first and second, second and third, bases loaded, and there's a gap or a shot down the line and knowing who's where. Because if you're just going to guess, then, then you're setting yourself up for, for all sorts of disaster. It could be a complete disaster at that point. You don't want to be guessing who's going where and what, what runners are doing what. Uh, and, and knowing which screen to look at was really helpful with that. And Ben, how about the preparation? Because you can have all the Zoom calls in the world, but it doesn't really replicate just the open clubhouse being able to ask a player just kind of a one-off question away from the rest of the media or getting more time with the coaching staff. What was your preparation like at not having that clubhouse access and especially being in Atlanta when the team was on the road? That that was the toughest part, Raj. We had, um, you know, for me, not just the clubhouse, the batting cage every day. BP just walking down there and just hovering around the cage. And, and having a conversation with a guy who might have gone two for three the night before, or a guy who's had some success against that night's starting pitcher, and just uh, getting a nugget here or there. That goes a long way on the air. The only real access that we had one-on-one -on -one was with our manager every single day, and that helped a lot. I mean, anytime you could uh, have that call every single day with your manager, lots of things you could ask him about, uh, whether it was things that he addressed uh, on the actual interview or maybe just some, some chit-chat you might have had before you actually started recording. That could go a long way. But when it came to the Zoom calls and the, the media scrums post-game, you're getting the, the basic nuts and bolts of what, what a guy experienced in that ball game. Uh, but that, that is, it's so hard to take that and really make it into anything that you'd want to use on the air. I mean, you do it. Um, it, it was, you'd get some information. You'd get some nuggets here and there of things you might can use. But there's nothing that can truly replace that one-on-one -on -one opportunity you might have with a player where you could ask him about something very specific that you could use for the game that night or use for uh, some other time that you, maybe some, some information you might want to log away and uh, use it another time. So that was really hard. I'd say outside of that, as far as uh, preparation went, everything else was normal. Everything else was exactly the same as you would normally do. But just that one-on-one -on -one nugget that you might get from a guy in the clubhouse or at the batting cage, that was eliminated. And that, that was one of the hardest things about 2020 to me. No doubt it was. And coming up, uh, we'll kind of talk through your career journey and how you got to the Atlanta Braves. But do just want to look at just the end of the season and playing in an NLCS. What was it like broadcasting some really high-pressure moments for the Braves, some really good moments along the way in this season? Mm -hmm. It, it's hard to beat that. It's it's the best thing. I mean, I've been broadcasting since I was 18 years old, and nothing really comes close, in my opinion, to broadcasting postseason games. Uh, last year, I got to do it for the very first time, and 
when when you do this every single day, that nervousness or, or anticipation that you might have had early in your career, it starts to fade away. It comes back in, in just a tidal wave when you're calling a postseason game for the first time. Uh, the first postseason game I had was last year, Bush Stadium, road team. Um, I mean, just calling a postseason game is enormous, but when you're doing it in the road team's ballpark, it's overwhelming especially when that team beats the team that you're calling for because the place is going nuts. Uh, I remember calling a, the Cardinals had a walk-off in game four of the DS last year, and I made the call, and the stadium was just shaking under my feet. I'd never felt anything like that before. So that really helped prepare me for, for this year because you just you know what to expect. And we had the, the very first postseason game was the 13-inning, one nothing game against the Reds, which was just unbelievable. I've never called anything like that in my life. It just scoreless for hours, and then they finally find a way. So that was great, but when you get to the championship series, with each passing round, everything is bigger and bigger and bigger. And the thing that was even bigger for us was we were calling games here in Atlanta. Well, we were told if, if they advanced to the World Series, we would be going to Arlington to call the World Series live. So... Obviously, you want your team to do well. You want your team to be in the World Series. But knowing that you could also go and actually call live World Series games was just uh, such a thrill to think about. So when they went up 2-0 and then they went up 3-1, it really was really looking good. And then they blow the 3-1 lead. But uh, as far as the games go themselves, there's just such a, a pressure to make sure you get everything right, really capture every single moment. Make sure that every one of your calls matches what's happening on the field. And I think you put even more pressure on yourself when you're doing that from a remote location like we were. Because it's so hard to replicate what's happening if you're not there. And to me, that was the biggest challenge. But uh, calling postseason baseball games to answer your question is just the biggest thrill I've had in this industry. And I can't think of anything that really comes, comes close to that. You just hope you get more opportunities to do it again because those are the kind of moments that stick in people's memories and live forever. And uh, let's go to the start of your career at Mississippi College and getting the opportunity to call you know, football, hoops, and baseball. It's where it all started. So do you have any stories from the early days of calling games? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about those days. and I think anytime you're a young broadcaster on your way up, you, you have to know that the accommodations are going to be difficult. Uh, you're going to have technical issues. You're going to have booths that are, are barely uh, quality enough to be a, a kid's playhouse, a treehouse. You know, it's just some really bad uh, facilities that you broadcast from. And, and I'm no different. I, I think when I was broadcasting at that time, it was Division Three football, baseball, and basketball. A lot of the times, basketball was fine because you're there in the gym and they've got everything that you might need. Uh, football, for the most part, is fine because that's the, the, the main moneymaker for some of these schools. Baseball was the challenge because baseball, when it comes to especially Division three schools, uh, when it comes to uh, the, the, the uh, monetary flow of those programs, it's, it's virtually non-existent. So, therefore, the facilities aren't going to be great. I remember one particular time where we, I think Mississippi College was playing Austin College. It was in uh, Sherman, Texas, if I'm not mistaken, north of Dallas. And I called over, and it was going to be a doubleheader this one particular day. And I said, do you have a press box? I'm like, yeah, we've got a press box. I said, do you have power and phone lines? Yes, we've got all that. You're good to go. I get there, and the press box was a glorified treehouse. 
with no power, no electricity, no phone lines. And I said, well, okay, here's your press box, but where, where's the power? And the guy pointed out over right field and the football stadium was on the other side of the right field wall. He said, can you run a line from that press box on the football stadium to the baseball stadium? I'm thinking that that's like a thousand feet. Like, what are you talking about? No, I, I, I got a spool with maybe 60 feet on there. So what I ended up doing was, is I went to the football press box, set up in there, called the game from the football press box, looking out over right field, could see the back of the scoreboard, which is not the side you want to see, and was calling the game with binoculars the entire time. And I thought to myself, it can't get any worse than this. This has got to be the, as far as facilities go, this has got to be the bottom of the barrel. And I called a doubleheader with no crowd mic, really no idea what was going on. And was, uh, gosh, if the fence would have been 330 down the line, you're talking about another, and we're at the 50-yard line in the press box, so you can do the math, and well over 600 feet from home plate. Somehow made a broadcast happen. And fortunately, it's, that's, that's as worse as it's ever been. Do you think about those moments when you're in the Braves radio booth and you're about to call a playoff game and you think about, I, I was calling a baseball game with binoculars over the right field, it's not able to see the scoreboard. I mean, I have those moments here at Florida after having called Division Three games in similar circumstances. You kind of pinch yourself at, at the amenities you have now and, and what's in front of you, what you're calling now. Do you think about the olden days while you're calling games now? I, I think you do reflect. I, I know... I remember the very first road trip I ever took with the Braves and I was thinking about the first road trip I ever took as a freshman in high school playing baseball. And I was, si- I was sitting on the back of a bus. It was freezing cold. It was February and I was sitting next to an equipment bag. And then I remember thinking, okay, I'm, uh, my very first baseball trip with a team ever freshman year, high school sitting on the back of the bus next to an equipment bag to my first road trip with a major league team and you're on a charter flight and you're flying to New York City and you got a five-star hotel waiting for you. So yeah, you do think about that. But I think you, if you, if you did everything beforehand, only thinking about the end result, I don't know that you'd ever make, I don't know that you could ever make it through. I think you have to really love the game because there's no, there's no guarantee. You can pay all the dues you want for a decade, two decades, three and broadcast from the worst facilities you've ever seen and, and have just uh, think that nobody's listening every single night. But unless you really love what you're doing, love the game, love broadcasting the game, I don't know how you make it because it, it, it's hard to fight through those, those moments of uncertainty and think all along, well, if I do this, I'm going to get to the big leagues. There's no guarantee. Uh, you have to really love what you're doing, and I can look back on it and laugh, and and I could I could laugh at it at the, at the present time as well. I mean, in those days, I knew I was paying my dues, but at the same time, I could laugh about it because I loved what I was doing and being on the air, calling a game, knowing that if even one person was out there listening, that was a dream come true to me because that's what we love to do. We have a passion for this, and being on the air, whether it's the seventh game of the World Series or whether it's a a, a Division Three baseball game on a Tuesday night that you feel like no one's listening to just being on the air broadcasting that game means a lot. And uh, it is fun to reflect back on some of those moments. You're getting that experience when you're in college calling football and basketball. And then you mentioned baseball. What, what for you, was it always baseball from the start of it? Was that really the spark of why you wanted to be in broadcasting? 
Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, I love calling football and, and basketball, and um, I mean those those sports are so much fun. It's, it's totally different from broadcast. They're all three completely different entities, uh, and and I find all three uh, a lot of fun. But for me, it was always baseball because it was every day, and I love calling football games and and the ramp up during the week of knowing you got a big game coming up on Saturday or Sunday and uh, everything that takes place Monday through whenever leading up to that game that's a lot of fun but doing it every single day and being on the air every single night and broadcasting baseball to me that uh, that's why I I fell in love with broadcasting I mean the first time I ever listened to a baseball broadcast and decided I wanted to be a broadcaster, it was baseball. And I don't know, it was probably a, a, a total package of everything involved, whether it be just the conversational style of the broadcast or uh, being every single night, uh, the relationships that you forge with the manager, the players, the fans, and doing it every single day. That, to me, was just very attractive, and I wanted to be a part of that. So I knew along the way I'd have probably more opportunities to call football and basketball and I did that in college, and, and even when I was out of college, I still broadcasted high school football games and high school basketball games, not so much baseball, but all along it was get into baseball, do minor league baseball, network your way up to the big leagues. Because just landing that first minor league gig was just so enormous to me because I was going to be broadcasting baseball every single night, and, and that was just huge to me. So that uh, that was what brought me into broadcasting. I knew that's what it was going to be, and anything I got to do with basketball or football along the way would be fun. But I knew baseball was going to be my, my niche more than anything. Yeah, and what can you tell us about landing that first minor league baseball gig, and then kind of your years in minor league baseball? What were some of the biggest lessons you learned along the way? Humility is probably the first one. Uh, I, I like you said, I did. Uh, college um, division three college basketball football baseball for four years so when i came out of college i thought i was just gonna waltz right in the door to some minor league gig i was this cocky 23 year old and, and needed to be deflated a little bit and i went down to the winter meetings in new orleans that year is 2003 and i put in multiple resumes tapes and you guys know how it goes to the winter meetings and i didn't get a single phone call not one and I needed that. I needed to be grounded like that. I needed to realize this isn't going to be easy. You're going to have to work your tail off. Uh, just because you did four years of, of college ball and you got a lot of experience doing that doesn't mean you're just somebody's going to just walk, open up the door and say, come on in, you're our guy. Uh, I knew I was going to have to work hard at that. So that really helped recalibrate my mentality towards the whole thing. And, and that's start of the work ethic that I even use to this day, I feel, uh, that drives me and challenges me to get better and better. Uh, so when I didn't get a job that first year, fortunately there's an independent baseball league that I landed in, uh, broadcasted games for them. We played 100, 100, 110 games, something like that. And I knew that was going to be a big help because I would have 100-plus games of tape where it was just me, nine innings, and I could work on everything I wanted to work on. And that's really when I started to sharpen exactly what I wanted to be, exactly what I wanted to focus on, what I wanted my broadcast to sound like. And the next year, I landed uh, a job with the short season A-ball team for the Padres in Eugene, Oregon. And that was huge. That was, that was somebody in affiliated baseball listening to lots of tapes, reading lots of resumes, and choosing me. And that was just the best feeling in the world. And especially when it was a, a team on the other side of the country. Uh, you know, they, they 
I can't imagine they listen to too many Southern broadcasters. I mean, it's, you're talking about a place 3,000 miles from my home. So in, in all likelihood, people who didn't have a whole lot in common with me, yet they still chose me. And that was, that was huge. And I knew at that point that I was in an organization. And while it might have been short season A, I knew at that point I was in the Padres organization. Now it was about doing my best every single night and networking within the organization to see who I could meet, uh, see who I could um, uh, impress, and, and see how I could get better and try to work my way up. Because uh, just getting that, just getting in the door was enormous. But you knew you wanted to go up the staircase from that point, and uh, that was a, a major uh, breakthrough I felt, and just gave me a lot of confidence knowing that okay, what I do. Uh, how I sound, that can play here, and I know that I can be successful starting here. In those early years in the minor leagues, what's the feedback system like? Uh, how often during the season are you sending out tapes and saying, can you listen and, and, and give me feedback? Like For young announcers right now in the minor leagues, how often should they be seeking that feedback even in season? That's, that's, a, good, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think when it came to what I did, I had one guy that was my mentor in broadcasting. He would listen to me pretty regularly because those were in the, that was the, the early days of listening to baseball on the radio and streaming. Uh, he, he could stream my game. He lived in Nevada. He could stream the games, obviously, from anywhere. And he would listen to me once or so a week. I had one guy, his name was Lee Adams, uh, and, and he would give me constant feedback. And I felt like during the season, and this was, it's different for everybody, but for me, if I was uh, branching out beyond that and getting multiple people's opinion, I think perhaps that would have been overwhelming for me. I had one person that I trusted. He was in the industry. He was my play-by-play -play mentor. So it wasn't just some guy that, uh, oh, hey, I listened to you here and there. Let me give, give you some feedback. This is someone who I trusted a lot, and I just bounced everything off of him. I mean, he, he was the one person that I did that with. Once I got to the off season, that's when I'd send my stuff out. That's when I'd hear from other broadcasters and, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What, what, how could I do this better? That's when I would really go back to uh, the, the, the grease board and start to rework on things here from multiple broadcasters. Uh, and, and I think we're all different. But for me, in season, it was pretty much one guy. And that's how I channeled everything. That and, and myself, I think you have to be your biggest critic in order to be successful at this. And I listen to my stuff all the time. I mean, I would I would fine tune things that I don't think anybody else would even pick up on. But but it was it was a, a big deal to me. It was something that I wanted to work on. Think little things that I want, whether whether it be how I open an interview or how I uh, ask a question or how, how, whether it be how I send it to break in between innings or things like that. That was my, um, that was really my lab, uh, the minor leagues, where I could do it every single night. I'd listen to three or four innings the very next morning uh, or on the bus if we were traveling somewhere, and then I'd take it right back to work that night. Okay, what do I want to work on? And that was my thing over and over and over and over again. And when it's just you in the booth, and it's just you doing nine innings of play-by-play, -play, there's so many things you can do in that lab. I mean, you, you can really experience and, and, and experiment with a lot of different things. So that, that's how I went about that. And I had one very trusted source in Lee, bounced a lot off him. And then once I got to the offseason, that's when I'd throw my stuff out there and just kind of take a shotgun approach and get the feedback you could get. And how long did it take you to, to find that right conversational tone on baseball? I feel like 
you know, even for myself and, and for many broadcasters out there, we, we go on the air with the, this expected sound of, of Mr. Broadcaster Guy. And then we realize, like, oh, wait, this, this isn't how it's supposed to sound. Just be yourself. Right. How, like, what was that process of getting to yourself? Because it sounds easy, but it, it isn't. No, it's not. And getting comfortable with your own voice is and, and your own cadence and how you call the game, that doesn't just happen overnight. There's a phrase that we use all the time with young pitchers in the big leagues. When they're coming up, they're learning how to win for the first time. It's this guy's got to trust his stuff. I think it's the same for broadcasters where there's already you know a, a John Miller in the world. There's already a Vin Scully in the world. There's already a, an Ernie Harrell. You can't be those guys. You're, you're, it's not going to work. you got to be you. Uh, you're the only person who can be you. And I think once you realize that and know that I don't have to sound like all these broadcasters and I don't have to sound like Howie Rose in order to make it to the big leagues. I can admire those guys from a distance. I can be big fans of what they what they do and how talented they are. But I can't mimic someone and be what I want to be. And once you start to, to trust that and trust your wisdom as a broadcaster, your cadence, um, it, it takes a minute. But once you start to do that, you start to develop into who you are on the air and i think that's really important and for me i think that really started to happen consistently when i was calling double a games and because you're around some great broadcasters i think about the broadcasters that were in that league uh when i was in the southern league it's just some really really good broadcasters and not just talented broadcasters hungry broadcasters guys who knew what their goals were guys who uh, could break down what their strengths and weaknesses were and we did that all the time i don't think we were ever afraid to admit our weaknesses to each other and we really had a, a there were four or five guys in that league that we texted and conversate with all the time uh send tape to anything about this anything about that and it was just um it, it really experimental uh, of, of kind of listening to different guys guys that you trust because we all had the same goal in mind and that helped a lot and i think through all that and surrounding yourself with people who were like-minded and had similar goals and were also working on some of the same things you were, you, you all get better as a group. And, and it's fun to look at now to see where some of us are. And uh, I mean, Joe Davis was in that league and Wayne Randazzo is in that league and J.P. Shadrick is doing great work with the Jacksonville Jaguars is in that league and uh, Mick Gillespie is doing work with the Cubs and myself. And it's fun to look back on that and know that you're going through all that all at the same time trying to get better and it all worked out. You, you all got to a level that you want to get to, and uh, to a to a talent level that you aspired to. And I don't think that ever stops. I think you're always looking to get better. But it's fun to go through those days and be surrounded by people who have the same goals you did, and and come to that conclusion together. Yeah, suddenly broadcasting a great fraternity. And uh, I remember when I first met you, you had a chance to have a big moment the night I met you because I was filling in as the PA announcer for the Smokies. And some guy named John Smoltz was getting to rehab uh, with Mississippi. And kind of along that, you got guys like Jason Hayward, Freddie Freeman. You're starting to see their rise in the Braves organization. Just how much did you enjoy kind of that journey once you were in AA, knowing that, okay, now we are a little bit closer to the big leagues. Now what we do here has a much bigger impact impact than maybe it did at Eugene or any college stuff you had done before. It made it real. That's for certain. Because it, it, at that point, it, it really came, it, it really came to mind regularly how close you were to the big leagues. And, and while it wasn't the same as the players, wherein if they performed at a certain level, they're going to the big leagues, you could be the best broadcaster in the world and be at double A. There's no guarantee 
it's not like that with the broadcasters, but you felt like it was. You felt like you these guys are going to be in the big leagues within the next 12 to 18 months, and you're calling their games. And I think that really flipped the light switch on in my head, thinking, well, if these guys are that close. This is this is close. This is really close to big league caliber baseball that I'm getting to call. And, and what a great proving grounds it is for me, because when general managers are two, I remember one night we had uh, Tommy Hansen. Uh, pitch a no-hitter, and our general manager at the time, Frank Wren, told me later that everybody in the front office was tuned into our broadcast listening to me. Well, there, there was no video feed, so that, that's what they had to do, and they were listening to every single pitch and um, you know, wanted to see him pull the thing off and get the no-hitter. So maybe that doesn't happen every single night, but people at the higher levels are paying more attention because you do have higher caliber players there that are knocking on the door. And with baseball being what it is now, and it being a young man's game now, probably more than it's ever been. I mean, we're quickly getting prospects to the big leagues. So if you got a big time prospect on your team in A ball, Double A, Triple A, so much of attention is on that on that player. Therefore, it's on the team. Therefore, some of that could leak over into your broadcast, and you could get exposure like you've never had. So, uh, in my particular set of circumstances, you had multiple guys who were knocking on the door, and I knew that they were going to be in the big leagues within the next year or so. And that just made you want to step your game up even more because you knew, I mean, it was the reality that you know, these guys are close. You could be close as well. Well, and that turned out to be the case for you, uh, going from the Mississippi Braves to the Atlanta Braves. Just what can you tell us about the networking process that led to your first big league and kind of full-time opportunity with Atlanta? I have a rain delay to, to thank for my opportunity here in Atlanta, believe it or not. We, you know, with the with the minor league season, it ends right around Labor Day, and the major league season goes on for another month. So, in '09, we had finished our season, and I just wanted to go to Atlanta and shake some hands, meet some people. So I was able to reach out to the organization. Hey, could you leave me a media credential? I'm going to be here for this day. Just want to walk around the press box beforehand and, and meet some of the broadcasters. I'd never met any of our guys, and. Um, I go over, I'm in the booth, I don't know, three, four hours before the game, shook hands with Don Sutton, shook hands with Jim Powell, uh, met Derek Schiller, who's now our president uh, with the team at the time, was the director of, of communications and other things with the team. So I was able to meet all of them. And, and just that moment I had was, was just great just to say, hey, I drove over from Mississippi, just wanted to shake your hand, let you guys know if you'd ever need anything, here I am. I think when you can get yourself in front of someone like that, that goes so much further than a resume or a tape. I and mean, at that point, you're a real person. So I felt like it was a mission accomplished at that point. But later in the game, there was about a two and a half hour rain delay. And all those guys were just sitting around. So, of course, I went back in the booth, ended up just hanging out, um, chatting about uh, the season, chatting about different players. Don Sutton uh, offered me moonshine, which I gladly partook in. <laughs> Uh, that he had in the back of the booth and just hanging around and just being in the booth at the time they said oh are you available to call some spring training games hell yeah i'm available to come i'll come drag the field if you need me to uh whatever whatever it takes uh so just being in that situation it was i, I think just showing up helped a lot but it, it's funny how when you just show up breaks can go your way i was happy i was there uh, on a night where there's happened to be a two and a half hour rain delay and nobody Nobody had anything else other to do than just sit around and talk. And uh, that's when that opportunity opened up. Year down the road, spring of 2010, uh, I was invited to call three or four spring training games that year. 
did those games, left a good impression. Following year, they had an opening for the post-game show, and they thought of me. And I think all that started with me taking that step to get in front of them, uh, not be over the top, just be a normal guy, just hang around. Hey, guy, you need anything, let me know. If you don't, no big deal. But either way, I made a good conversation here. I made a good uh, good contact here with some of you guys. And I think that goes a long way. And for me, it was right place, right time. And just being there, meeting those guys, everything else is kind of lined up for me. Do you remember that first game, what that was like for you as a member of the Braves radio network and, and maybe filling in, doing your first play-by-play for the Atlanta Braves? Do you remember what was going through your mind and, and just how you tried to maybe calm yourself down for that? Yeah, um, yeah that was great. That was um, April the 29th, 2011. remember it really, really well. When I took the job here, my, my job was to host the post-game show and I was going to be used as a fill-in anytime any of our broadcasters were out. So going into the season, once I landed the job, I knew I was going to get some play-by-play opportunities, but I didn't know when. I didn't know if that would be later in the season. I, didn't, I had no idea. I just had to be ready. Well, it was early in the season, and uh, Jim Powell, uh, one of our broadcasters, had felt ill. I think he'd had uh, a sore throat or something like that, and they reached out to me and said, he might need a few innings off tonight, so just be ready. Uh, our, our broadcasting team at the time was Jim Powell and Don Sutton. Don did the middle of three innings. Jim did first three and last three. Don was already out for that weekend. Uh, Mark Lemke was filling in. So Jim was doing all nine play-by-play. So when they told me that he wasn't feeling well, that I could be used, I knew at, at some point in this game, I think it was a Friday night, it was definitely a Friday night, uh, that I was going to be used. I don't know if it was for an inning, two innings, three innings. And so they told me just to be on standby. So it's almost like I was a reliever in the bullpen, just waiting on the call. And I get a text message from our then uh, producer, Brian Giffen. It was about the top of the third. And he said, Jim wants you to call the fourth through the seventh. And at that point, I'm texting friends like, I'm going to be on next inning. Uh, make sure you got it. Make sure you're tuned in. I've got the fourth through the seventh. And that was just huge. So after I texted, texted everybody, I knew it was going to go on. I looked down at my, my book because we just finished the top of the third inning to see who my first batter was going to be. It was Albert Pujols. I was like, <laughs> how do you make that? I mean, it's unbelievable. So I had about a half an inning to, to make sure I was calm, ready to go, got my text out. Was excited, but knew, okay, when you get in there, it's time to buckle up, let's go. Um, and so I sat down, and Albert Pools was the first batter. I think he singled to left field. And uh, Nate McLeod hit a home. He was the first home run I ever had. That was maybe the bottom of the seventh inning. But the thing that was overwhelming to me was just sitting there in that seat and having a full stadium. I mean, that, that added so much to the experience. I mean, because if you're calling your first major league game, it could be you know, a Tuesday night in June and there's 2,000 people in the ballpark. It's still going to be enormous. But when you add on, there's 40,000 people there. It's the Braves and the Cardinals on a Friday night. It was just overwhelming to see that many people, but there was one mic and you're sitting at it. And that was that was over the top. And I don't know that you can really ever condition condition yourself to just – being used to that when you're doing it for the first time, but you just ease in. Once they throw the first pitch, it's the same game you had always called for the last however many years in the minor leagues. 
And it's like the players say, when they come to the big leagues and they make their big league debuts, it's all overwhelming and there's all, there's all this nervousness. But once you step into the box, it's the same game. And, and it's the same thing for broadcasters, too. And um, I think when you remind yourself of that, that, would, that, that calmed me down more than anything. And at that point, it was about getting the job done. And uh, it's a great night. And let's talk about when you finally sit in that seat. Uh, what makes good radio play-by-play for baseball? And, and we always ask our guests, baseball guests we have on, what's the line between uh, description in terms of good enough description, too much description, where you're just throwing words to throw out words? Where, where do you stand on, on what makes good description on the radio for baseball? Well, it's got to breathe. And I don't think anybody ever turns on the radio... I don't think everybody, anybody ever turns on the radio and wants to be overwhelmed with information. I think it's got to be nice and, and seamless. I'll take a step back from that and say more than anything, the reason people are flipping on the radio, they want to hear the score. Got to give the score. Oh, I don't think you can give it enough because at, at the end of the day, what is our job? Well, our job is a lot of things. But I think the most important thing is is the score of the game. People are landing at the airport, getting in their car, turning it on, sixth inning, what's the score of the game? Uh, people are, are getting home, turning on the radio, whatever it may be. They want to know the score. And if we don't give them that, there are, in 2020, there are countless other places where they can go and find the score, whether it be their ESPN app, their MLB app, the television. If you don't give it to them, they'll find another way to find what they want, and they'll, they won't come back to you. So that's, that's always a, a challenge to myself is giving the score as much as I can. Outside of that, the next rundown is everything happening on the field. The game is what matters the most. I can sit here and enlighten my audience all day long with, with stories and things that took place and comparisons and all that. But if you're doing all that over what's happening on the field, then you've failed. I think it's the score. I think it's what happens on the field. I think when you in the in the vacuum that you have outside of action on the field, that's when you can weave in whatever it is you want to weave in. And, and I think you've got to find ways to entertain your audience, but also inform them as well. I want my audience turning off the radio at the end of the night and hearing something, learning something that they did not know about beforehand, because I took the time to do the research I took the time to find a nugget. I took the time to find something that was more than a slugging percentage or he went to Nebraska or this guy was a converted catcher. Every, when, you, when you listen to our games, when you pay attention to a team night in, night out, most people know all that stuff. I think it's our job to find things that a listener would say, oh, wow, I never knew that. Or that's an interesting story. I'd love to do more research on that. Or, hey, did you hear the, the, what uh, Ben and Joe and Jim were just talking about? With, so did you know that this guy you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever. So those are all big things, and those are fun things, but they can't come above the first two steps. And to me, when you can find a way to weave all that in together, that's when you've got yourself a really good broadcast because uh, right off the bat, I know what's happening in the game. I know the score. I know what's taking place on the field when the ball is in the air, when the pitch is thrown, when the ball is in play. That's taking precedence over any other piece of information that you might have. And then in the meantime, uh, in between some of those moments, you've got plenty of times where you can mix in whatever story it is that you want along the way. 
And Ben, how much do you love just being one of the broadcasters for a team, getting to go through the ups and downs? And now you've gotten to do it over several years, you know, a decade worth of games you've been with the Braves. Just, you know, as opposed to maybe getting ready for a TV game where you're kind of parachuting in and giving the basics on some of these teams. How much do you love just the day-to-day ebbs and flows of Major League season and getting to be a radio broadcaster for a team, like you mentioned, each and every day? It's all I ever wanted to do. I think... I think when it comes down to what we do with baseball, I just wanted to be one of the voices for a team in the big leagues. Um, if it was the lead voice, fine. If it's uh, a guy that is you know, the number two, whatever. I just wanted to be in the, in the group. And what we do mimics our game so well. Because while listeners, it, it's very rare that a listener will listen to all nine innings of 162 games. But that doesn't mean that they lose track of what's going on. That doesn't mean that they miss things along the way. What we do is, is it's almost like a soap opera. It's every single day. And one of the most fun things about what we do is we follow a team for six months. And you think about all the things that happen over that span of time, from injuries to trades to rookies making their debuts to guys going on hot streaks to all sorts of things that happen along the way. And we're there to cover it. So when you're in that group and, and you know as it is for us now with myself and Jim and Joe just showing up and knowing that we enjoy our time with each other and we also get to bring listeners the soap opera of this baseball team for six months it's so much fun uh, I think you have when you're in a situation like that and you've got multiple broadcasters in your booth you, you've got to enjoy the game number one but you've got to enjoy your time around each other number two I mean uh, this whole none of us chose this profession because it was uh, it was going to be extremely stressful and, and and hard to do. No, th- this is a fun job. It should be fun. And when you get to share that, <coughs> excuse me, with other people in your broadcasting team, I, I think that makes it the, the best case scenario because you're getting to travel with each other, broadcast with each other, um, bounce ideas off of each other, and, and follow a team together, and, and just being in that mix. Having that group, that, that makes going through the season so much more fun. You mentioned when you were in the minor leagues, you were able to use it kind of as a lab, work on different things. Uh, since you have been in the majors, and especially since you've had a more prominent role in the play-by-play the last few years, uh, are you still kind of tinkering with some stuff, anything you've kind of learned along the way recently? I don't know that you ever really stopped that. Um, i tell you one thing that, that I do work on a lot is – Making sure you're ready for the moment. Making sure that you can anticipate what's going to happen because when you get a walk-off home run, it's going to be a big deal. But when it happens for a big league team as opposed to an A-ball or a double-A team, it's all anybody talks about for the next 24 hours. It's just so enormous. In a normal season, there's so many people in the ballpark. I think that you, when it comes to play-by-play, I don't think a play-by-play man can ever have a perfect game. I don't know that it's, per- it's possible for, for three hours just be absolutely perfect across the board. But what you do want to do is you want to nail the big moments. And I think you have to realize what when those moments are coming. Uh, it, you know, if it's late in a ball game and it's a one-run game, you get a guy on base, I mean, you better be ready for the situation. You get a guy on third base, if a ball gets by the catcher, if, the guy, if, if there's a, a suicide squeeze, I don't want to be caught off guard. I think it's so easy to just kind of let your guard down and be looking at one place and all of a sudden something happens, you're surprised. I don't want to be surprised. 
And that's something that I probably work on more than anything is trying to anticipate the moment. I remember, for an example, that Freddie Freeman uh, hit a walk-off home run against the Brewers last year's 10th inning. And um, I think when you go to extra innings, there's this shift in how you feel about the game. It's, it goes from, hey, it's about to end in the ninth inning to we might be here all night. I remember he comes up to the plate, lead things off bottom of the 10th inning, and we're in commercial break, and I'm watching him down in the on-deck circle, and I think to myself, you better be ready, because this could end in one pitch. You might not be here all night. And, and if he comes to the plate and the first pitch he hits here in the bottom of the 10th inning is a home run, you come back from commercial break when the span of seconds, game's over. You don't want that, that to be uh, uh, choppy. You don't want to be surprised by the moment. And when he climbed in there, I remember thinking, like, you better be ready if he hits it out. 1-0 pitch, hit it out of the ballpark. That was the call because I was ready for it. And, and I think that's what I tried to work on more than anything, just anticipating the moment. It might not happen the way you think it's going to happen, but if you're ready for it uh, and, and ready to be uh, precise and accurate with your call, I think that goes such a long way. That doesn't mean that you formulate what you're going to say. I think that's a big mistake. I don't think you can uh, – it needs to be off the cuff. It needs to be uh, a legitimate reaction, an authentic reaction from you and your call. But you can anticipate something's about to happen in this game. Something's about to change in this game. There's about to be a moment here. And, and I think anticipating those moments and being ready for them is the thing that I work on and tinker with probably more than anything and just being aware. I think that's the toughest part of a baseball game, given the nature that our game can go from really nothing happening to all of a sudden the biggest moment of the game takes place like that. you got to be ready for that. And in those biggest moments, aside from anticipating what could happen, you know, in, in trying to wrestle those big moments vocally, um, and also letting the crowd tell some of that story. Maybe it's a little different on radio than it is on TV. You can let the crowd even tell more of that story. But, Ben, where are you in terms of the balance of trying to really go over the top in, in description in a big moment or just kind of more caption-like, if that makes sense, in, in, a, big, in a big moment? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I'm under the impression that I can never describe what is happening on the field as well as the crowd can, especially for a big moment. And I think when you get a big moment where you're going to use the crowd as part of your description as to what's going on, and, and I know there's, there's different approaches to this, and I don't know that there's a, a, a right answer to this. I think it depends on the broadcaster. But for me, say what happened, be accurate with your call, and shut up. And, and I, I, I think in those, I want that I want those moments. It might be for five seconds, ten seconds, but I want the crowd to be as much a part of the call as I am, or more. But I, like I said, I think they can tell the story better than we can. Uh, I think our job is to accurately describe what is going on in the ballpark. That's not limited to the white lines. That's the entire structure of the stadium. And when you got forty-two thousand people on their feet going nuts, that needs to be over the airwaves. I don't, I don't want to be talking over that. So I think letting it breathe is, is a big part of, of what I do because that's what I want as a listener. So therefore, that's what I'm going to do as a broadcaster. So I, I want to make sure that my call um, is, is uh, I want to make sure my call matches the moment, but I don't want to talk all over uh, the crowd and what they're doing. I think that's really important. Um, as far as um, as far as 
you know, captions go. I, I, I think that's great. I think you have to know where to drop them in. I don't. Think, I think you have to know that the right places, the good, the good sweet spots to, to throw that in when it comes to a broadcast, and and all that combined. That's why I love radio broadcasting as much as I do because it's it's just a blank canvas. The listeners relying on us for everything, and there you are as you know as if you're the conductor of a of a great symphony, bringing it all together, um, and, and letting it all come onto the canvas for our listeners who can't see at, at all what's going on. So. I think that's really important, and I, I think it. Um, in my younger years, maybe I was, uh, I, I wasn't aware of all that, and and would talk over crowds and think I needed to talk more and more and more to highlight a big moment. I don't think you do. I think part of narrating a big moment is letting the crowd do most of that narration, and you putting in the right caption at the right time to bring it all together. And and let's slide a little bit to preparation because that's another side of it. Uh, aside from calling the game, how much has your process changed throughout the years from starting in the minors till now? A, a lot, uh, a, a whole lot. Um, you know, that's something that evolves, and and I, I would hope that it would continue to evolve. I'd hope that the way that I prepare for a game in 20 years is different, even from how I do it now. Not a whole lot, but maybe even more streamlined. I think we're always trying to streamline that process. But I love that aspect of my job. I, I, I can't imagine what this job would be like if I didn't enjoy uh, the, the prep, uh, studying up for a game. I think when it comes to uh, a normal game uh, in the regular season, I'll probably put in an hour and a half to two hours worth of prep for each game. It doesn't all come at one time. It's kind of pieced out across the day. And and, and for that, I might use three-fourths of that. I, I never, I, I don't think I've ever used it all, but that's the beauty of baseball. You prep for a for a, a team coming in, and they're there for the next two nights after that. So you've got plenty of, I think when you're prepping for a series, uh, you, you've got it there for the next three, four days, depending on how long the series is, and that's really helpful. But it's come a long way. I, I, what's important to me now is, is different than maybe what it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. Uh, how I retain information has changed. I, I have to write things down in order for me to remember things. I've got a, a yellow legal pad. I go through probably six of them in a season. And I'm just constantly writing things down because if I just hear something, I don't really retain it. I have to write things. I know the probably half dozen websites that I go to every single day where I find information. Uh, the guys that I'll go talk to in the clubhouse and at the batting cage that I know can give me good stories, that I know can give me good pieces of information. Those are all things that I write down. And I've got a very organized way of, of having all that information on my page, uh, which page it's on, where what I have in my book versus what I have on my legal pad. And I just kind of go back and forth. And when I what I have on my legal pad, I've got it on one side of my book. The team that's hitting is I'm writing on this side. Swip the, swap the innings. Legal pad goes to the other side. I'm on this side of the page. And I kind of learn how to balance back and forth between that. But those are all things that have come a very, very, very long way. I'd even say that how I score a game is different now than it was 10, 15 years ago. Because you start to find out more and more what works for you. Maybe you'll pick up on something that another broadcaster is doing and think to yourself, that could be, that, that could, that's something I could do that could make my job a little bit easier. So you just pick up things along the way and it just evolves. And I, I really like the, the, the routine that I have now. 
I'm very routine oriented, and uh, for my for my prep work, I know when I need to start. I know what I need to accomplish. If I don't, I feel so out of place. Uh, I, I feel fish out of water if I don't check all my boxes of things that I'm that I'm normally doing in my routine before a game, and, and that doesn't normally happen where I don't do them all. Uh, but I hate feeling rushed, and I like having a lot of time, and that's my routine daily. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that it's evolved. Things that were important to you 10 years ago aren't as important now. I'm just kind of curious as a follow-up to that. What is the most important stuff for you now? And then the stuff on the legal pad, is that more kind of anecdotal stories or is that more stats? Where do you kind of fall on the balance between those two? So, so my my legal pad is, first thing is pictures. I've got to uh, put a line right across the middle of the page. Got a picture here, a picture there. And I'm trying to give a good scouting report of what that picture is. Uh, a lot of those things are. I'll talk with a with a player. I'll talk with a coach about this particular pitcher. He does this really well. Watch for this on two strikes. He's good with this with left-handed batters. Things like that. I, I got a lot of those just little notes just jotted down. And maybe if somebody looked at that, they'd understand what I've got there. But for the most part, the the organization of it all is kind of in my head. And I think to other people, it looked really foreign to them because it's kind of all over the place. So I've got a really good description of those pitchers and what I want to bring into the broadcast. Because every pitcher is, is different. I mean, they're all extremely unique, and, and the kind of uh, challenges that a pitcher might present to an opposing lineup that night. I want my listener to know that. I want those guys to. I want to have that in detail in front of me, where I can drop that in in case certain moments in a ball game come up where uh, he's got a two-two count against a left-handed hitter, and he's really good with this pitch and this count, or, or things like that. I want to be able to drop that in and, and, and really pepper my broadcast with those types of information, type of information. I've, those are the things that I've got on my legal pad. Outside of that next page, I might have something on a, uh, if something is particularly unique to me about a ballpark or a manager or a story that I heard of the cage. A lot of the times I'll put a little note down, whatever with this player from however many years ago that I can drop in. That, that's just all there to remind me of uh, things along the way that I might could use over the course of a three or four game series. So I'm typically using two sheets of paper every single night. All of my notes, anything that I might want to bring up, anything that's interesting to me, anything historical, that's all on that legal pad. I don't have any of that jumbled up with my, my scorebook. I try to keep my scorebook very clean, very streamlined. I might write uh, in, in the tab there, home runs and RBIs going into that night's action. But everything else is name, defensive alignment, score, what happened. And I try to separate those two things because I'm writing on one, I'm reading off another. Uh, so that's, um, uh, I guess that's the process that I have. Some of the things, to answer your first question, and I'll kind of ramble there with that one, but to answer your first question, what's uh, maybe as more important to me now compared to 10 years ago, that relationship day in, day out with your manager and, and kind of bouncing around the clubhouse. No, you got 26 guys in there. They're all different. Some guys are extremely extroverted. I'm going to tell you everything you ever wanted to know. Other guys aren't going to give you much at all. I think you have to know your clubhouse. You have to know who your guys are. You have to know who's going to give you information. You have to know who's going to give you good stuff about a particular pitcher that night. Some guys are going to be very generic and give you nothing at all. Other guys are going to do a really nice job of breaking things down. I think knowing those, having those relationships, knowing what to ask, 
knowing how to go about a clubhouse and not look like I'm a fish out of water. Those are the things that are significantly more important to me now than they were 10 years ago because I think we have much more access to that now in the big leagues than we did in the minor leagues. Because you might chat with your manager, you'd be around each other on the bus. Uh, but a lot of times those guys are seeing players that maybe they've never seen before. In the big leagues, you, you see these teams all the time. You, you, I'm, I, Freddie Freeman's facing Jacob DeGrom. He's probably had 50 career ABs against the guy at least, and he can tell me a lot about uh, what he's expecting to see that night. So knowing who your guys are and knowing those, having those relationships and, and knowing how to develop those relationships, gaining information, and telling that to your, to your listener that's something that is, is of utmost importance to me now that maybe I didn't put a whole lot of value into 10, 12 years ago. Get you out of here on this. We're almost to the end of the hour. Uh, a few weeks ago when we had Chip Carey on, he gave us the story of uh, his dad, you know, introducing Ernie Johnson Sr. as the voice of the Braves. And then Ernie Johnson said, hey, Skip, we're all voices of the Braves. And it seems like that culture stemming from Ernie Johnson Sr. has been passed down through generations through the TV and the radio broadcast. Uh, just as we kind of wrap things up, just how special is the group of guys you have around you on Braves radio and TV? And as well as we got to give a shout out to Jay Chad, who does, I know, a big role and making sure you guys sound great each and every night, and especially in a year like this with all the different things he had to do to make sure he could bring the crowd to the airwaves. Well, when you walk into our booth, you're embraced with the history of our booth. And we've got, and, and, and we have Joe to thank for a lot of that. You know, Joe's been doing Braves TV and radio for 30 plus years, right around 30 years. And he's got lots of great photographs through the years and things like that that he's brought in, we put in the booth. We've got some, uh, you know, with, with the cardboard cutouts uh, that were in the stadium this year. They made some extras of, of Pete and Skip and Ernie and Don's. They're, they're all in our booth. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of cool because we've decorated our booth with a lot of the history of Braves Radio Network and, and guys who have done this before us. Because uh, while I never got to meet Skip, I never got to meet uh, Ernie Johnson. I did meet uh, Pete multiple times. I've Don is like my baseball father, even to this day. I mean, he's, he's done such a great job of just taking care of me uh, and, and being a link to the previous generation of guys. I know that Jim had a good relationship with Pete uh, when he was uh, alive, and, and all those guys knew each other and worked together. So to be a part of that fraternity is so much fun because I get to hear stories about guys that I never met but always admired from afar. So while I never met Skip Carey, I've listened to him a thousand times, likewise Ernie Johnson, uh, and had a relationship with the rest of those guys. So to be in that group with those guys and to be reminded every night with the pictures on the wall and everything of, of who sat at this mic before you and just know that you're on the team it is really overwhelming. Uh, those are guys that I listened to for years and guys that I admired from afar for a long time and now to be on that team that's a dream come true for me and uh, you'd hope that you could do this for a long time I all I ever really wanted to do was to be a voice for one team for my career I know we all have different aspirations and things that we aim for but that's all I ever wanted to be was the guy for a major league team for a long time and, and hopefully when we get 20 30 years down the road uh, people would say that I'm in that same group as well for a long amount of time that would be a lot of fun but that's uh, it's it's a good reminder and a, and a good standard to look up to and know that before you there's a, a, a several really talented broadcasters here and you have a, a legacy to, to maintain and you don't want to see it dip while while you're in there so 
uh, it, it's a great time and uh, it's humbling to be a part of that and a, a dream come true every single day. Well, we'll look forward to that continuing for years and years and years with you and the Braves in Atlanta. You do such great work, Ben, and just uh, you've been a good friend to me through the years. So I look forward to seeing what's next for you. But thank you for your time today here on Broadcaster Hour. We've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys and uh, stay safe through all this. Good to uh, good to catch up, talk some baseball, and let's hope for a, a normal 2021 yes. next year. <laughs> right, so thanks, Ben. All right. Our thanks to Ben Ingram. And thank you for watching this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour.